And so I learned while researching this book that John Adams was a man of great contradictions, one of the most prominent yet controversial figures of his time, a champion of individual rights who attempted to silence the press and, in summation, a fascinating subject for a biography. And before I sign your first editions of my book, John Adams in American Life, I'll take a few questions. Uh, yes. So, Dr. Nair, did John Adams have a penis? I'm quite certain he did. Uh, why do you ask? Did he ever drop his breeches in public to disprove Jefferson's accusation that he was a hermaphrodite? No, but according to some accounts, he once addressed Congress in the nude to disprove the rumor that Abigail had castrated him. Are there any more questions? Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today's episode, President 2, John Adams. John Adams, once called the Vice Presidency the most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived or his imagination conceived. But that doesn't stop it from being an action-packed thrill ride, as we'll see now as we join John Adams, Vice President. Join us next time for another exciting episode of John Adams, Vice President. George Washington, hot. John Adams, never hot. Oh, really not, though. Really. No. Are we starting portly. the Adams conversation? We are. Very we are. portly. Oh, we are. Now, <laughs> which do you both... Chelsea and Laura. Yes. <laughs> this is a new We're episode, so we have to reintroduce ourselves. Uh, I'm Chelsea Denault, public historian. And I'm uh, Laura Pierce, uh, also a public historian. And they are... The Americanists! <laughs> do you both... We'll work on that. Do you both like John Adams? Yes. I actually love John Adams. John Adams is wonderful. He is... He does not get his due. He did not get his due at his time. And he does not get his due today, although slightly more since HBO made that lovely miniseries. So slightly more people appreciate him now after that. But I love Paul Giamatti, but again, he also did Harvey P. Carr and being a Clevelander. I super appreciate that. So I'll ask my question again. (laughs) Who played it better as John Adams? Was it Paul Giamatti or William Daniels? Paul Giamatti. Uh, Definitely Paul Giamatti. As much as I uh, love Mr. Feeney, quite frankly, uh, for people our age... um, (laughs) Paul Giamatti I'm claiming, is... I'm claiming St. Elsewhere, William Daniels. <laughs> uh, I, I Personally, I think Paul Giamatti is a fantastic actor. Uh, and so he, he did a... I think he did a great job. Also, HBO had a bigger budget, so uh, they were able to make him look quite a bit more like uh, John Adams than, uh, than was able to be achieved for uh, William Daniels. Although they I... did do that HBO thing of it looked really grimy and... 
dirty and muddy. Is that what act, is that what colonial times really were? Oh yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> Very much oh, so. Yeah. Oh yes. Outhouses everywhere. There wasn't a lot oh. of sanitation. Come well, on. There, there weren't even outhouses. You just had your chamber pot and you threw it out the window. That's right. Into the street. That's what that's and what streets are for. These streets are not paved, right? They're all uh dirt roads, uh maybe, you know, some some rocks and things like that. Rocks. Um so when it rains, the roads are now made of mud, and everyone and is tracking that mud and chamber pot uh, leftovers and everything and everywhere around with them. horses and whatever the wildlife is going on out there. Absolutely. I mean, uh, cities were not so removed from the country as we see them today. So people had animals in the city, pigs and chickens and all sorts of animals. Um, so those were running around everywhere. Of course, the only way you're getting anywhere faster than walking is with horses, um, which have an inconvenient uh, tendency to defecate, <laughs> defecate <laughs> when walking down the street. Um, so yeah, colonial times were uh, definitely not our modern standards of cleanliness. So HBO was uh, appropriate in that sense. Got it. <laughs> Getting back to Adams, you both are very pro-Adams. Why is that? Oh, do you want to go first? You want me to go first? Okay. Um, I, I tend to uh, like Adams uh, and his... <laughs> uh, his I, I don't know that I would call it dem- democratizing tendencies, leanings. Um, Also, I honestly, I think to some extent Adams was more of a pragmatist than a lot of the other founders. And in hindsight, that seems more realistic. So when I look at Adams, I see uh, someone who had realistic expectations for the possibilities of the country, as opposed to when I look at Jefferson, who was such an ideologue and had so much revolutionary fervor, but wasn't realistic about um, some of the realities of that. So, for instance, when the French Revolution happened, Jefferson was blindsided by the uh, gruesome nature of that revolution um, because it had never occurred to him that a revolution could be anything but, relatively, peaceful. Um, because he was so idealistic. Um, and so when you contrast that with, uh, John Adams, who maybe because everyone seemed to hate him so much, uh, was kind of more of a pragmatist about things. But I think it also comes from him being a practicing lawyer, Mm -hmm. right? Most of the early founding fathers were trained in the law, but not very not very practicing. They right? were gentlemen. It wasn't expected that they would have careers right. or you know any sort of job. Their right. job was to be gentlemen. Whereas Adams literally rode the circuit in Massachusetts mm-hmm. for years before mm-hmm. the revolution happened. And in some ways, I almost feel like his, especially riding the circuit and dealing with these very small petty crimes with common people, that... it. it Besides making him more of a realist, he saw America at its lowliest, mm-hmm. right? And understood that America is, yes, great ideas and lofty goals, but also a very real and human thing. And I think that's, mm-hmm. now that I'm talking about it, I think that's actually why I like him so much, is he is very real and honest and very proud of America and 
and not just America the idea, but America in the people themselves. I mean, and I think you can think of Adams as a lot more of a quote-unquote man of the people than most of the other I founders. I was going to ask that because I always got the sense that the early, early founding presidents um, had more of a, a aristocratic difference. Uh, I am president, therefore I cannot uh, mingle uh, with the masses, but based on hearing you talk about Adams, it sounded like he had um, interacted more with the common man and was able to uh, get a sense of pragmatism, as you said, from it. Absolutely. Um, you know, as much as people characterized Adams as this monarchist and proud. as being very proud and um, being very stuffy and all of these things, he was honestly much less, you know, quote unquote aristocratic uh, than certainly than Jefferson and then a lot of other uh, founding fathers because he actually had to work. He did not come from money. He did not have sort of all this money laying around that he could just... Um, live off of and live off the land and slaves, he was actually earning money of his own work. Um, and so I think that made, you know, that makes him a much more similar to the average American at the time and today um, than most of the other founding fathers. Speaking of um, Adams's legal career and his work, didn't he kind of make his name by defending the soldiers who shot... Uh, the Boston in the Boston Massacre. Yes, this is uh, actually one of my absolute favorite uh, John Adams facts, only because I used to, um, before I became a historian of the post-World War II era. You were a John Adams reenactor, weren't you? <laughs> I, I was. Um, no, I, uh, I originally wrote my... Uh, uh, a thesis uh, when I was in undergrad on John Adams' legal partner, Josiah Quincy, uh, who was very much the, an aristocrat in the Massachusetts sense. Um, and and so the whole John Adams-Boston massacre connection is uh, infinitely interesting and fascinating. Yes, he, he did uh, defend the soldiers in the Boston massacre trial as their public defender. Uh, he was asked... Uh, to do that after literally every other lawyer in Boston wouldn't touch that with a, a six foot pole. Um, and so, but he did it out of this sense of duty and this sense that the law pertains and protects everyone. And this sense that even though these British soldiers had killed his countrymen, they still deserved equal representation under the law. So an early Gideon's trumpet, huh? <laughs> I mean, it was a very, uh, you know, you think, thinking of it now, it's a very modern idea um, that we have of, at least in theory, uh, <laughs> our legal system. And, uh, you know, that wasn't necessarily an accepted idea at the time. Um, so as Chelsea mentioned, none of the other lawyers in uh, Boston were interested in defending these men. And frankly, Adam's... Uh, suffered considerably for it um, in his personal life. And his um, professional and, life. And his professional life despite, as well. Despite the sentence they got. That's actually why uh, most Boston lawyers hated him so much is because he was successful at it. Well, it, but instead, and we actually have a sketch about this because 
instead of having them executed, they had to quote unquote settle for having their thumbs branded. Only two of them. Only two of them had their thumbs branded, yes. or only two thumbs? Only were two branded? thumbs, or just two people? <laughs> only two people. Okay. Oh. <laughs> two thumbs total, two people's two thumbs. thumbs. <laughs> did, did two people take all the branding for the rest, or? So the others were, uh, the other soldiers were decided that they had no involvement, um, that they did not fire shots that actually killed people. The two soldiers whose thumbs were branded. Uh, the jury decided that they were the only two responsible for actually shooting the shots that killed individuals. Because there was no such thing as forensics as we would know it. Oh, gosh, no. <laughs> Absolutely not. not. So to whom would you... Comp- Colonial CSI. <laughs> exactly. To make a really overbroad and silly comparison, was John Adams the Alan Dershowitz of his day or the Johnny Cochran of his day? I literally have no idea who those two individuals are. Abigail! Please, John, don't make me wish we were apart. Sometimes writing letters to you is preferable to your personal company. Did you see what Jefferson's saying about me now? No. I found a letter from Aaron Burr claiming I have great and intrinsic defects in my character. I see. Printing such correspondence is below the breaches. You are trying to win re-election for president. Oh, and look at this. John Adams once protected British soldiers from murder. That's not wholly inaccurate, you know. I defended the soldiers after the Boston Massacre, just as any civilized society would. You had their thumbs branded. It was at our execution. I think that's the point. What, now you are trying to help my former friend to become President Jefferson? Oh, stop being dramatic, John. It's not as if the job becomes your character. This is politics. Yes, it is. You, of all people, should be keenly aware of that. After all, your political career started after that Boston Massacre trial. I only did what I thought was just. Yes, and you got rewarded with several positions. That's when I first noticed you. Oh, I know, I know, uh, but sometimes my lack of popularity does make me sad. Probably why I got so many letters from you over the years. I mean, Ben Franklin hated me. John. Ben Franklin! John! Didn't he love everybody? I understand that's the problem. You called Franklin as degenerate as Alexander Hamilton, and you were correct! So why does Aaron Burr hate me? He hates Hamilton as much as I do. We should be compatriots. Politics. Always, always politics. Uh, Perhaps I am tiring of it all. Perhaps you should not read everything that people write about you. Hey, hey, look at this. John Adams has a hideous hermaphroditical character, which has neither the force and feminist of a man nor the gentleness and sensibility of a woman. God damn it, Jefferson. That was indeed quite harsh. I tell you, the ingratitude of the man whom I recruited to write the Declaration of Independence knows no bounds. That phrase sounds more like that creature Jefferson hired for his campaign. Oh, a calendar? Yes, Mr. Calendar. A rather ruthless being he is. Oh, yeah, he already called me a hypocrite, a criminal, and an ungrateful tyrant. That quote about the vice presidency haunts you. The job is a joke, my country has in its infinite wisdom invented the most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived or his imagination conceived. You should have withheld those words for your biography. Truly, there are times when I do believe you, my darling, are more tailored for being a politician 
than I ever was. There are times I wish I could become one, just so my fellow women could be better represented to discuss the matters of the day. Ah, here we go again. Remember the ladies. Yes, I remember your admonitions and your letters. Your would-be despotism by petticoats. Don't mock me. Oh, I apologize. I may not be the most beloved, but I know who my most beloved is, and I shall never turn my back unto you or to your love. So, will you finally leave the election alone? People will vote as they will vote. You have achievements. You have your place in history. You have a family. Be content. Hmm... Worst of all, a John Adams re-election will mean the re-election of his wife. What was that? Oh, the article continues. She is Mrs. President, not of the United States, but of a faction. It is not right. How dare he? That, that, that weakling, that atheist, that libertine. That coward. Jefferson is a mean-spirited, low-lived fellow. The son of a half-breed Indian squaw. Ooh, sired by a Virginia mulatto father. Ha! Kind of that, Mr. Monticello. That shall be released to the press, correct? Oh. Oh, oh, indeed. If we shall lose, we shall lose fighting. You sure you don't want to mention that slave girl? Uh, perhaps in the next missive. Won't we have much to talk about with the Jeffersons after we leave public life? Uh, if he ever talks to me again, after all, everyone hates me. Not Everyone. Let that be our little secret. Mm. With all that, then why did he run for president? I think he felt responsible to run as a federalist against Jefferson, right? He feels that he needs to pr protect the young country from Jefferson and his dangerous Republican ideas. And that gets into Adams Jefferson in a lot of ways was the first real presidential election yes. we had. Certainly, and, and not coincidentally, I suppose, the first dirty election. Mm -hmm. um, was, I mean, given, given that a lot of the founding fathers had warned of political parties in general, how, were, was there any sense of self-awareness that these two guys who were sort of friends, as I understand it, were friends before? They're Very they're, good friends. And yeah. then ultimately friends afterwards, at least yeah. to a certain extent. How aware were they that they were doing something that in some ways they were sort of told, don't do, it should not be done? I don't, I, I guess to some extent, I don't, I think they understood that they were doing that. Um, I think they both probably thought that that was regrettable, but they both believed that their ideas in this young and vulnerable nation were the better ideas, and so they were prepared to fight for is those that, ideas. Is, is that one reason? I'm, is that one reason why they were able to maintain the friendship or return the friendship down the road? I think that they both realized that the other had what he thought was the best intentions of the country in mind. They did not agree on uh, what would be the best for the country, but I think they, they both did appreciate the fact that um, the other wanted what was best. Um, and they, they were, uh, you know, friends. Uh, they didn't necessarily see each other often, but they were friends up until their death. Uh, fun fact, on the exact same day. Yes. Wasn't it uh, 4th of July? It was. 
And didn't they, I also love that apparently the campaign such as it was is essentially writing missives and having them published nationally in various newspapers, which is how each found the other, what the other was saying about them. Oh, during the election, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, my understanding was Jefferson had um, Confederates who would... Uh, sling mud for him. That way he could stand, uh, hold himself above the fray and be a gentleman. Uh, but he was pretty much the puppet master behind it, even though others were slinging the mud, if I can mix metaphors there. Uh, yes, ab- absolutely. You know, uh, I, I think in a lot of ways, uh, you know, like you see today uh, <laughs> with, you know, political campaign commercials or things like that, the nastiest ones are never paid for by the candidate, right? They're paid for by the committee to elect so-and-so. Thomas and, Jefferson. You know, whatever. Yeah. And it was very similar then. Um, Thomas Jefferson didn't necessarily want his personal name on those sort of nastiest attacks, um, but he was very much directing what was said by others. Because correct me if I'm wrong, there was really no such thing as retail politics in 1800. Almost all of the campaign was conducted by proxy. There were no campaign speeches. There was no. There were no campaign trips. Well, there was no railroads, so there were no whistle stop tours. <laughs> but um, the presidents did not campaign. They did not make personal appearances. It was. It was like a war fought between. Their proxies between their soldiers and not, you know, two generals duking it out themselves. When it goes back, oh, go. Oh, and it was very much fought, you know, in in the press as well. Um, so, you know, that was the way that they were getting their ideas across and trying to convince people um, that they were the right man for the job. Um, so, you did not have. Um, as many of these, you know, personal speeches, um, camp, you didn't have campaign trips, you know, they didn't go to, um, various other states and, and speak. It was really all, um, much, much more by proxy and, uh, through, through the press. And And wasn't it sort of seen as kind of unseemly to be able to, to do that if you were the candidate? That's what I was actually going to, to say, right? This, this, comes from this very Washingtonian idea that like only the people who are worthy to serve do not seek the office, right? This very um, detached kind of way um, to seek public office. Um, that's That was the standard at the time, this very humble and detached kind of way. Or at least the perception of yes, that. Yes, exactly. Um, because to imply that... <laughs> Getting back to our, uh, po- our point when we talked about Washington, <laughs> the perception of humility as opposed to actual humility. Exactly. Absolutely. To, to, to pretend like Thomas Jefferson did not desperately want to be president uh, would, would be a complete lie. Um, so the perception needed to be there, um, you know, that you were going to take on this burden of public office that was, you know, asked of you, um, but you were not seeking it um, when in reality it was not necessarily the case. And to kind of go off Laura's point earlier about how there were no campaign stops, there were no, um, right, there were no party platforms that much either. You ran on your personality and on your record as a, as a human person, right, and your honor, um, very much so. Which is really the miracle that John Adams managed to win. Um, <laughs> Who was he a, running against? a colder against? personality compared to <laughs> Thomas Jefferson. Didn't he run against?
And now for another action-packed thrill ride of John Adams, Vice President. Oh, oh. <clears throat> Can you contain your excitement? Join us next week for yet another exciting action-packed thrill ride of John Adams, Vice President. You wanted to see me, Chief? Yeah. We've got to talk about this article you wrote. Oh, yeah. I think this is one of my best. You don't think I went too soft on Trump, do you? That is definitely not what you did. Well, it's all in there. Every one of his business entanglements with foreign governments, his bankruptcies, every contractor he ever stiffed, every underage girl he ever groped. Allegedly. Allegedly. It is all there. If this orange bastard thinks he can bring back the alien and sedition acts, intimidate this country's journalists into silence like some spray tan John Adams, he's got another thing coming. Again with John Adams. What do you have against John Adams? He makes a great beer. That was his cousin, Samuel. John Adams was a bum who jailed journalists for speaking out against his administration. There's a reason there's no street in Chicago named after him. There is an Adams Street. That is named after John Quincy Adams. The streets are in order, you see, and Adams comes after... You're a real nerd, you know that? I have my passions. So, what about my article? We're not printing it. What? 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 Why not? That is some of the best, hardest-hitting reportage I've ever done in my career. Exactly. No one wants to read stuff like that. And don't say reportage. Makes you sound like a douche. What do you mean no one wants to read it? People want to know what their president is doing. Who do you think we are? Teen Vogue? People want to know what their president is tweeting. They want to know who is breaking up with whom and which direction is uh, the one. They don't want some biased hit piece on some politician. Telling the truth with sources is a biased hit piece? It is our job to shine light on issues. It is your job to sell papers and drive web traffic. While you were wasting your time with this, you could have written me 15 new listicles. Or at least a damn slideshow. Now get out there and generate some content, damn it, or I'm demoting you back to gypticles. That's listicles where the... Where the entries are all reaction gifts, I know. I went to the seminar. Oh, God. Hey, Ramona. Did you see the story out of Istanbul about Erdogan arresting reporters? Man, I'm glad we don't have to deal with stuff like that here. Is there a term for Adams fans, Adams family, Adam, Adamsians, Adamites, Adamants? Adam files. Adamants, that's what you are. Adam files. The Adam files. The Adam uh, files. Uh, they were, I mean, Jeffersonians, I guess you could call people who were fans of Adams Federalists. Yeah. That's certainly the opposite of a Jeffersonian. No. Would you care to defend the Alien and Sedition Acts, for which Adams is probably most famous? <laughs> I do not care to defend today. that. I do not want to defend it. Even, the, even my favorite people have uh, done things that um, are regrettable. So while I do uh, you know, think John Adams is um, underappreciated, um, he is rightfully vilified for the Alien and Sedition Acts. And I do, I do think, you know, we've been talking a lot about how Adams is this pragmatist, this realist, this man of the people. I do feel like one of the reasons that he had such a poor presidency is he struggled with his, I don't, I guess I'm turning into a psychologist now. He struggled with his self-confidence, uh, especially in 
being president in that he he didn't see himself as presidential. He didn't know how to act as presidential. And so um, it doesn't come off very well for him. And so you can sort of see you can see how that then leads the to missteps. some of the decisions that that he made when he was being criticized and you know those were hitting you know maybe a little too close to home um with some of the insecurities that he already felt um not to continue to psychoanalyze <laughs> someone who is long since dead yeah. um and I also he, he had to, also he came right after washington so that was a long uh, uh, that was a big shoes that he had to fill and shoes that he said many times that he did not feel um, suited to fill. Uh, and so in some ways, Adams overcompensates as president. Welcome to the 2017 Conservative Political Action Conference Book Fair. James Francis Adams? Why, yes, yes, I am. And you're St- Stephen Miller. Uh, I read your biography about your esteemed ancestor, President Adams. Why, thank you. I wanted to meet you to thank you for all the inspiration this book provides. Well, such flattery. Oh, especially in Washington in this moment in history. The inauguration is near. Big days next week. The answer to all our prayers finally gets to de-darken the White House. Well, yes, it will certainly be different. Are you a CPAC for the job fair? I've already got a job with the Trump administration. Very nice. What office? Immigration and naturalization. Headed right into the action, eh? That's why I wanted to meet you. I read your John Adams biography and, and wanted to thank you. Thank me? Well, as I said, thanks for buying the book. Oh, I didn't buy it. I, I downloaded it off the dark web off some of my white power pals. Gee, thanks. And, and wow. Your chapter on the Alien and Sedition Acts, man, they were a spasm of inspiration and wisdom. Interesting way to you put it. You talked about how John Adams said an immigrant could not vote until they had lived in America for 14 years. I did, I but, was thinking uh, about how we can keep the Muslim hordes out of our fair country, and that just spurred all kinds of concepts I want to throw at President for Life to be Trump. The point in my book wasn't that all his ideas... I never wa- realized the Alien and Sedition Acts allowed the government to arrest and deport any man whose country was at war with America. Not in a good way, Mr. Miller. I just Miller. kept thinking, considering how many war-adjacent acts America has created in the last 50 years, imagine if we could just throw out anyone who came from a country where, say... American soldiers were just sitting, like one of those crap hole Central American countries. You said you read my... I think I could get the boss to agree with that. And then all we need to do is have some Army intelligence officers hang out in some rando countries in Africa and Mexico. I have to insist on asking you... Oh, but the whipped cream on the white chocolate and vanilla sundae of your book was what Adams decided to do to the unwashed browns. That's That if a citizen of any non-American country was suspected... The law was aimed at the French! Suspected of plotting against America, that would be enough to deport them. I wasn't praising Adams with that. Oh, that's pretty cool. Pretty uncool. As great as my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was in other areas of his life... The point of my chapter on alien and sedition laws were how horribly he overreached and trampled on rights. That's why the laws were oh, overturned. Not for a hundred years or so. Not till the 1960s. You are talking like they should be revived. Oh, hell yeah. 
I am going to suggest to our dear new president to stop all immigrants of color at the borders. Forget the wall. Stop them from leaving airplanes. Stop them immediately. Then, when the liberals scream as they will, we will really go after non-Americans by taking their babies away from them. Babies with alternative skin colors. Oh, my God. The Immigration Service has their own army. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. ICE. What a cool nickname for a private police force to keep America pure. I'm I'm not sure the president may be amenable. Oh, it's not going to be easy, that's for sure. I'm just one voice in an army. Steve Bannon, James Comey, Michael Flynn, Paul Manafort, Sebastian Gorka, the new press secretary Spicer. Oh, the brain power and ingenuity that Trump has surrounded himself with is staggering. All geniuses, all full of drive, all trying to get the attention of our soon-to-be commander-in-chief. I must be more clever, more cunning, more creative if I am to emerge with the president's ear. A wall across the Mexican border saddens me because I didn't think of it first. But John Adams, your book, dude, thank you. Don't thank me, please. I will never forget you, never. <clears throat> Miller? Oh, uh, yes, Mr. President. No, no, I, I am sorry, I... I Traffic, traffic with with all the people here to see you ascend to the Oval Office, sir. Yeah, yeah. Yes, right away. And I'll see if they'll throw an extra cheeseburger in the sack just for you. Right away, sir. Well, gotta go. Again. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Miller. Mega. (laughs) At least you could have done is buy the fucking book. And I think before we wrap this up, though, I think we would like to give our due to Laura Linney. I mean, I mean, Abigail. No, you definitely mean Laura Linney. (laughs) Uh, Oh, Abigail. Abigail overrated. Oh, Oh, no. no. (laughs) I believe Abigail Adams was the Laura Linney of her time. A national treasure. Uh, Abigail Adams, I still think, even though I think everyone acknowledges that she was very much the force behind John Adams. Uh, I still think that she is extraordinarily underrated by historians. How so? Oh, she is a political genius. She is a, uh, a but she's, not only is she a great political mind, a great uh, legal mind, uh, she's very well educated for her time, uh, but she's also a woman. So she's doing all of the work, raising children, tending the farm while John is, you know, in Congress getting yelled at by his uh, colleagues. Everybody. Yeah, by <laughs> literally every human, um, right? Her children, she's terrified by smallpox because smallpox is ravaging Massachusetts, and so she has to vaccinate her children. Very right. controversial decision at the time. Right, and I so like she... That. Abigail Adams pro-vaccination. <laughs> right? Uh, right, so she not only... Um, I, I feel like she not only has to carry the burden that women had to at the time, right, with the home and with the family, but she also takes on the burden of... John in his lack of self-confidence, which I don't want to, again, psychoanalyze John Adams. But We she... have no such compunctions. <laughs> we go right for it, so um, right, but, but jump right their, in. If you read their letters, you know, she's always kind of building him up. And, um, and like, pushing him like a little yes. schoolboy. Like, try this. 
say this to Thomas Jefferson. Well, thank God marriage has changed over the years, and that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> she's, really, she's really the Lynn Cheney of her time. <laughs> For real. Uh, in, in many ways. Or the, the Michelle, Michelle Obama. Maybe yeah. she's the Michelle Obama of her time. So what... Uh, and this is a, a segue, but what was the glue? Were they both political animals and just recognized that in each other? Or what? I, I they love deeply this. loved each other. Yeah. Um, you know, at a time when a lot of marriages were sort of of convenience and of necessity. Um, John Adams and Abigail Adams deeply, deeply loved each other. Um, and so again, you know, if you read their letters, which uh, luckily so many of them have been preserved, um, you can, you can really see that. Um, and there's a lot more affection there than um, you see in a lot of uh, contemporaneous uh, letters between spouses. And what's so funny, like they actually had no intention when they were when they first met, they had they were not interested in each other that much. Like John was very much taken with the uh, the local beauty. Uh, unfortunately, his better looking and more talented friend married her, and then he was like, "Oh, Abigail." And she was like, right, I'm also beautiful. And he was like, oh, but also you're wicked smart. Uh, and so that's actually, it was not only a marriage of love, but it was a marriage of mutual respect. So it was it was America's first rom-com is what you're saying. <laughs> Basically. I don't know why it hasn't been comedy, made yet. Would you say... <laughs> at, cute at the uh, punch bowl or anything like that. Well, I mean, wherever there was John Adams, there was comedy at his expense. Would, yes, that's true. <laughs> would you say Abigail was a suffragist? Oh, yes. Remember the ladies. Yes. Uh, you know, when John Adams was at the um, congressional conventions and she would write to him and say, you know, remember the ladies. Um, don't forget about the women. And, uh, you know, when you're making these big plans for the country, don't just think about men. You need to think about women as well. So, well, you know, I, I don't believe that the title of feminist, you know, existed at that time. Um, she, I have, I don't usually like to put modern terms on historical figures, but I have absolutely no problem um, saying that Abigail Adams was a, you know, would today call herself a very proud feminist so if she, she was, was alive no today. So she Phyllis Shafley is what you're trying to Ooh. say. Not at all. Um, you know, she understood the realities of her time, but, uh, you know, despite that, certainly thought women were perfectly capable and um, perhaps in some ways more capable than men. I was going to say more capable in that not only, you know, are women do in her time period, women have to be well-educated in order to be... Well, in Massachusetts, especially. All right, I'll, I'll give you that because there's some controversy as to it. Thomas Jefferson, you know, grudgingly <laughs> educated his daughters. I right. mean, uh, Aaron Burr was considered fairly liberal because he educated his daughters. So I got the impression that um, having your daughter educated was not uh, widespread. Well, not too educated. You know <laughs> what I mean, right? It's a finite I, amount I, of education. I, right, a young woman, in order to be seen as well-groomed for marriage, had to be able to read, obviously, right? They had to have a certain level of education. And, of course, these are wealthy, well-to-do women that we're talking about here. Just <laughs> side note. Yes, thank you, Laura, for reminding me Disclaimer. that class, class exists in <laughs> colonial America. Uh, yeah. I mean, Williamsburg, they enacted a law that said to, in order to live in the city, you had to have a brick house. 
but only the wealthy could afford a brick house. So Shocking. I, was like, I guess the rest of y'all are just out of luck. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, um, oh, I already forgot what my tangent was. Uh, but, you know, women did have to be, um, the, these upper crust yeah. of women uh, did have to yeah. be educated to a certain standard in order to be seen as, you know, a... a reasonable and appropriate spouse for a man of that stature as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So within this upper crust, there was uh, education, this is more so in the North than in the South, but there was education of women um, so that they could at some level, uh, right, be, uh, be able to have discussions with their husband, be intelligent enough to sort of be certainly not considered at the time at the level, but um, intelligent enough to then be able to educate their children um, was was one of the big driving forces there. Right, and in that way, Abigail, I, th- I think, believed that women are e- were even more capable in that they had to be educated, but they were also taking care of everything at home for the men, right? A very... They, were, they had you, these very dual roles that required a lot. Particularly have slaves. Absolutely. Right. Again, which in the, the Adamses North. did not. Yeah. Yes. But we know someone who has. And now we're back with another action packed thrill a minute extravaganza with John Adams, vice president. Uh, oh, sorry. Wrong. Wrong office. Oh, it's down the hall. Whiz bang pow! That was John Adams, vice president. The coming months. Johnny Cochran yeah. represented John- OJ. Well, Johnny Cochran did some other things, oh, but yeah. he's more famous. I mean, I've heard of that, but I, yeah. I don't know. Who did you, did you not watch OJ? I was, made a big, I, was I was literally just bored. No, no, no. <laughs> it was just on two oh, years ago. Yeah, really yeah so I did not. It's on my Netflix queue. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, I don't know who Alan Dershowitz is, though. As a, uh, a segue, well, I would also recommend. Uh, ESPN's OJ Made in the USA. Also, oh, 30 Oscar. for 30, right? Yes, yes. yes. very good. It's an I love 30 for 30. We'll, we'll edit this part out. I won oh, no, a please. Number of awards. <laughs> yeah. no, it was very Because it also deals with the racism and, you know, awesome, jo- yeah. also the one of the, one of the cool things about Johnny, I don't know why I'm holding the mic. Well, I'm saying this, but without. But, but very voice. quickly, um, besides representing OJ Simpson for his in his defense, if you read about the L.A. riots of 1992, there was a really horrible incident where a, tr- a Caucasian truck driver named Reginald Denny was dragged out of his truck and hit with a cinder block, among oh. other things. And this this Cochran, will be heavily edited since we're supposed to be right. doing it. And, uh, and Johnny <laughs> hey, Cochran he's represented relevant. him. Oh. And his, uh, against the L.A., and just to get through Anyway, all right. Back, <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll cut all this story. Okay, back to John Adams. And uh, just quickly on Alan Dershowitz, watch a movie called Reversal of Fortune. Mm-hmm. Jeremy Irons won an Oscar for it. But anyway, oh, I love Jeremy Irons. DB Comedy presents the Electables. The John Adams sketches 
were written and produced by Gina Bacola, Sandy Bykowski, Joseph Fedorko, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, and Patrick J. Riley. The John Adams sketches were performed by Gina Bacola, Brad Davidson, Ramona Joay, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, and Patrick J. Riley. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production of The Electables Podcast by Joseph Fedorko. The Electables Concept was created by Patrick J. Riley. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.com, who is the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the full extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's website, dbcomedychicago.com, and follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy and Twitter at DB Comedy Chicago. Don't forget to comment and like us wherever you've downloaded this podcast. DB Comedy, where democracy is a burlesque.